We'll leave the, the welcomes and all the courtesies to the end because I really want to jump in. Okay, so this is, as I just said, lesson number two of Curious Tales of the Talmud. This course is all about decoding some of the most bizarre and mysterious teachings and stories of the Talmud and making sense of them and making fabulous sense of them. So here's my goal for tonight. My goal tonight is to explore together with you. Um, how many stories do we have? I think three Talmudic stories that are baffling, that are just baffling and puzzling, make sense of them to the point where you will walk away with some incredible ideas. To reset the conversation from last week, we mentioned last week that there are many bizarre stories in the Talmud, stories that on the surface really don't make a lot of sense. And although some have dismissed these stories, some have used these stories to point out that Judaism or Talmud study or the rabbis were, you know, just completely out there and shouldn't be taken seriously, Maimonides explained last week, this was one of our big ideas, that it's in these bizarre stories, in these curious tales of the Talmud, that some of the deepest lessons of the Talmud shine forth. Some of the most important and deepest lessons of the Talmud shine forth in these most strange stories. Why are they encoded in stories? Simply because it's, number one, it captures the imagination, it requires a little bit more work, and of course, the mystical ideas were not put out there for everybody to, uh, to have access, so this is a way to kind of keep it on the lowdown, so that those that are in the know, know, and those that don't know, no harm, no foul. So that's how, that's the understanding of the stories of the Talmud. They're not Baba Mises, they're not, um, uh, you know, the old wives' tales, or whatever you call them, legends or myths. They are deep lessons encoded in the Talmud, Talmudic storytelling. And that's a really important idea. Which brings us to our conversation today, because last week we spoke about waves with white fire at its crest, and we spoke about, um, uh, what else did we have? We had a, a fishy island, an island uh, that was really a fish, and we spoke about um, uh, giant wilderness corpses, and we explained that one is referring to the inner drama of a person, one is referring to anti-Semitism and, and putting hope in host countries, too much hope, and the other one is talking about the idea of spiritual growth and spiritual progress and not remaining static, lying on your back in the desert. All of that was good for last week, but today we're going to go even deeper. Today we're going to look at more stories. Stories that seem to portray God in a human form. So again, all the stories that we will cover today seem to portray God, seem to describe God in very human terms. And as we'll see, these stories that portray God in human terms are very bizarre, confounding at best, boarding on heretical at worst. And yet, as we'll see, there is so much depth, profound messages and truths conveyed in these stories Messages that tell us about God, the universe, our relationship with God, and our relationship with other human beings as well. Tonight's class, I believe, is one of the finest I've ever taught. I know I haven't taught it yet because we're doing it right now, but I believe that you will find this class to be one of the finest, one of the most powerful classes that you've taken with me. That is, that is my 
that's what I'm anticipating from tonight's class. So let's jump in. I mentioned last week that the Talmud, the Talmud has been a lightning rod of controversy throughout the ages. Not because it did anything wrong, but because those that wish to find the issue with Judaism sometimes start digging in the Talmud and say, aha, look what we found. So, and by the way, if anyone studied Talmud, so you know it's pretty benign. It's a bunch of rabbis discussing legal issues and arguing with each other over like what's a question and what's an answer. Not what the question and answer is, but even what is a question and what is an answer, that itself is a subject of debate. Um, and so the Talmud is pretty innocent, yet the Talmud has been singled out as a reason to, um, it's not the reason, but it's been singled out and attacked in people's attack against Judaism. Last week we... Excuse. Yes, exactly. An excuse. So, last week we spoke about the attack against the Talmud because of the bizarre stories. What, you want to take my... The king, uh, the, king of, the king of Portugal said to the rabbi in the debate, right, you want me to take your argument seriously? Look at the Talmud. You guys have these crazy stories. I'm not taking you seriously. Right, before I get to your arguments, right, let's talk about uh, the stories in the Talmud. Right, so, so it's a non-starter. So that was last week. But today we're going to bring a more, we're going to raise a more serious issue. An issue, an issue that was also brought up during debates um, between Christians and Jews. By the way, I should mention, Jews never called Christians to debates. That wasn't a thing. It's not like Jews go around and say, we're going to call you to a debate to prove that Judaism, you know, makes sense or whatever it is. Never happened. In fact, Maimonides says, one is not allowed to initiate a debate. There's no reason, there's no benefit, there's no gain, there's no point. You only stand to lose. But when Jews, I'm just giving you a context for these debates, religious debates. When Jews were forced, by, usually by the king, to participate in a debate. In other words, the king sent out a message to the Jewish community. Send your rabbi on this date to a debate to defend Judaism, or else you all have to leave or die. So I call that forced. So in the, and that happened many times in history. The Ramban Nachmanides had a debate, very public debate, and we, I mentioned last week a debate. We have one this, this week as well. Or at least uh, 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 you'll see soon what I'm talking about. The bottom line is when that happened, the rabbis participated. Why? To save the, um, to save, um, uh, the population, to save the community. Back to our story. This week, it's not just the Talmud has silly stories we can't take you seriously. That wasn't just the argument. That's not the argument we're citing today. Rather, throughout history, there have been those who look through Talmud and accuse Jews of heresy, of a doctrine that is heretical, saying Jews are heretical. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. Jews are all about monotheism, all about God. And Jews are heretical? That was the claim laid down by some based on the anthropomorphic terminology in the Talmud. Anthropomorphic means using human terms to describe God, which we'll see in a moment. One of the famous attackers of Jews and the Talmud, um, calling Jews and the Talmud um, uh, heretics or heretical, one of them was the 12th century Spanish Jewish apostate Peter Alfonsi. Okay, so he was, his name was Peter, well, he, 
He renamed himself Peter Alfonsi. His original name, you'll get this, you'll love this. His original name, Moshe Safari. Yeah, sounds a little bit different than, uh, than Peter Alfonsi, or as I like to call him, the Fonz. Peter Alfonsi. Okay, Peter Alfonsi, yes, I went there. Peter Alfonsi, a.k.a. Moshe Safari, um, was a Jew who decided that he's no longer Jewish. But you know how Jews are, right? It's not just I'm no longer Jewish. It's I'm going to tear down the entire structure that existed. Why? Because if it's not good for me, it's not good for anybody. If I'm going down, I'm taking everyone down with me. That was his, I'm not defending it, by the way, but that was his way of thinking. This happened, Pablo Cristiani was another such Jew who turned, uh, who converted and then decided to take um, the rabbis to debates and, and, and got Jews, in, when I say in trouble, he got the kings and the church to turn against Jews and Judaism, terrible stuff perpetrated by Jews. When you hear Jews saying, we are sometimes our own worst enemy, you should know this has a very solid and real historical foundation. So, this fellow Peter Alfonsi, a.k.a. Moshe Svari, um, attacked Jews and Judaism for being heretical, and he pointed to the Talmud. I'm going to share my screen with you so that we can look at this text together. All right, let me find it. Here it is. Let's share it. Um, let's ask Bev. Bev, are you up to reading? Um. The first, longest, and most original of Alfonsi's 12 chapters indicts, indicts? Indicts, yeah. indicts Jewish theology for its crude anthropomorphism, primarily with explicit reference to the Talmudic homilies, the Avadot, that violate both reason and any defensible interpretation of the Old Testament. Peter cites the rabbinic dicta that God wears to fill in phylacteries and that he rages and grieves over the present dispersion of the Jews, and that he is located in the West, all of these beliefs that no sane mind could entertain. The Agadah ostensive attribution of human characteristics to God upset Alfonsi the most. He condemned such homilies and their rabbinic authors for demeaning the divine majesty and perfection, and for deviating from the teachings of reason and scripture. Peter has no dearth of disparaging terms which he characterizes, with which he characterizes such rabbinic error in the dialogue. Bad, evil, insane, indecent, ridiculous, worthy of derision, stupid, foolish, lewd, and the list goes on. Beyond his intense dislike for this rabbinic lore, however, some recent investigators for Alfonsi and his writings have detected an indictment of the Jews for heresy. According to one recent monograph, Alfonsi's wishes to show that these texts contain doctrine heretical by the standards of classical Judaism, making Judaism, as it is, was practiced by Alfonsi's contemporaries, a heretical deviation from the law. Thank you. So let me explain what's going on here. So we have this guy, Peter Alfonsi, not that the whole class is about him, but just we're using this as kind of like a bit of a catalyst to get into this conversation. So he lived in the 12th century, in the 1100s. Um, he lived in Spain. He, grew, he was born in Spain, grew up in Spain, um, decided to convert out of Judaism, and he went on attack of Judaism. He attacked Judaism, he attacked the Talmud, he attacked the Agadot, Agadot are the stories in the Talmud, for essentially, as we see there, well, first of all, being silly and, 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 and just crazy and, and, and foolish, etc., and 
heretical. That was like that last, that last piece. That was, this is what we're adding to today, today to the conversation versus last week. It's not just silly, but now it's, it's the accusation is heresy. And his point is that the way Judaism, so-called Judaism in the 1100s, has nothing to do with classical original Judaism. It's, a, it's heresy. It's heretical. It's, we would call it in, in, in Hebrew, Yiddish, treif, right? It's no good, right? It's, 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 it's wrong. It's not kosher. And that's it. Do away with it. That was his, that was his angle. And I guess his angle was, and the real religion, aha, Right, he would say, is Christianity, and, and, and that's why I left this, uh, this, uh, this fake news, and I went, okay, that was, his, that was his take on it. Fine. So, here's the problem. You ready? Here's the problem. The problem is that he's right. Not about his conclusion, but he's right about the fact that Talmudic tales portray God in human terms. Right? That's like the core of his argument. You have these Talmudic, Talmudic stories portraying God in human terms, and that's wrong. Okay, He's right. There are Talmudic stories, many of them. We'll cite some tonight. That do portray God in very human terms. And it begs the question, as Alfonsi, a.k.a. the Fonz, was really asking, what's the deal with the anthropomorphisms? That's a fancy way of saying humanizing God. What's the deal with humanizing God? How is that kosher? How is that allowed? They tell a story about a mother that comes, I told this recently, a mother comes home from, uh, a mother comes home from work and sees her daughter, she's drawing a picture. So she says, tell me, what are you drawing a picture of? So the daughter says, drawing a picture of God. The mother says, but no one knows what God looks like. And the daughter says, yes, because I'm not finished with the, with the, with the picture. Anyway, so what's the point? The point is humanizing God, depicting God, right? Drawing a painting, a portrait, drawing a picture. You can't. And yet, in the Talmud, it seems that it's done. You're probably wondering, well, where, so show me the money. Like, where, where are these stories? Rega, we're going to get there. In fact, we're going to get there right now. So to see what this entire kerfuffle, what all of this stuff is all about, let's look at one such Talmudic tale that portrays God in human terms. I'm going to share my screen with you. Let's jump right back in. My friends, we have, an, we have uh, a, a tremendous discussion coming up. I just want to mention, because I, I had to jump right on, and we had to jump right in. But of course, all of the typical announcements apply. Everyone is muted, but please unmute to jump in with questions or comments or clarifications. Right? It's meant to be as much a dialogue as possible, given uh, you know, the limitations of this format. Okay, um, I'm going to share my screen, and let's take a look at our story. <laughs> Ravavahu and the heretic bathing in a river of fire. I love this intro. Text number two. Eve, are you up to reading? Eve, if you can unmute. Yeah. There we go. And, right. I'm and I'm reading in English. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank goodness. Amin heretic said to Ravavahu, your God is a priest in as much as it is written. Let the Israelites take for me Truma, the priestly tithe. Now, when he buried Moses, where did he immerse himself afterwards to rid himself of ritual impurity? You cannot reply that he immersed in water, for it is written regarding him. 
He has measured the water, the waters of the oceans in the palm of his hand. He immersed in fire, Rab Avahu answered. As it is written, behold, God will come in fire. Is immersion in fire a valid method of purification, the heretic asked? On the contrary, Rav Avahu replied, immersion in fire is the preferred method, as it is written. All that cannot withstand fire, you shall make pass through water. Thank you. All right, so this is from the Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin. You see it right here, right? Talmud Sanhedrin 39a. I need to explain what's going on here, and then I'm going to ask some pretty tough questions. Okay, but let's first understand the story. So we have a min. Min is an Aramaic word for heretic. So I know we spoke about heresy in the Talmud, but the Talmud is calling someone else now a heretic, but let's, let's check out the story here. All right, so you have this heretic that goes to the rabbi. His name is Rav Avohu. Now, Rav Avohu happens to be a master in Agada. He was a master in the homiletical interpretation of Torah and the Talmud and all that stuff. And in fact, he had a thing of arguing and debating heretics. Why? Again, not because he was looking to prove people wrong, but because he got swept up in, in, in these debates. And it says that the heretics hated Rav Avohu so much, the Talmud says that they tried to poison him once. A whole situation, they tried to poison him, they tried to kill him, whatever. Not for now, that's a different story. Back to our story. So this heretic comes to Rebbe I'm just breaking down the story so that everyone understands it because I want to ask some questions on it. He says, God is a priest. Which in Hebrew, right? Kohen. God is a Kohen. Why is God a Kohen? How do I know this? Because, the heretic says, because there's a verse in Exodus 25.2 that says that the Jews should take for me, for God, a truma. A priestly tithe. Now, the truth is, in context, it doesn't mean a tithe. This is God asking for donations for the Mishkan, for the temple. So it's not a tithe. It's not a priestly tithe. It's donations. Vehicle truma means donations. But our heretic apparently did not really understand the Bible either. But this is where he was going with this, right? I'm just explaining the story before we ask questions. So he says, well, God is asking for the truma tithe which goes to the priest, so clearly God is a Kohen. Now, we know by a Kohen, a Kohen, if they contact ritual, if they come in contact with something impure, they become impure, and they can't, they have to purify themselves. God came in contact with death, because God buried Moses. How do we know that God buried Moses? Well, the Torah tells us that Moses passed away, and the Talmud says, well, how, who buried him? Because they were up on a mountain by himself with God. God buried him. So, ah, the heretic says, hold on, hold on. God is a coin. God buries Moses. So God becomes ritually impure. How does he go to mikvah? How does he ritually, how does he immerse himself? You see this gotcha moment. Ho, ho, ho. The heretic says, gotcha. God is a Kohen, which means he has to be pure. He becomes impure through ritual, through contact with Moses' corpse. Then, he, so how does he become pure? You usually dip in a mikvah. There's no mikvah big enough for God. How do I know this? Because there's a verse, sorry for, I just wanted to see everybody. Um, there's a verse in Isaiah that says, all the waters fit in the palm of his hand. Well, if it fits in the palm of his hand, then he can't fit in the water. Basic physics, right? If, right, if you got the whole world in your hands, then you can't fit in the world. It fits in you. Boom. So Rebbe Vo says, yeah, you're right. He didn't go to a mikvah of water. He went to a mikvah of fire. 
And then the fellow says, is fire good? And the rabbi says, is fire good? Are you kidding me? Fire is the best. It's only if you can't do fire, then you do water. Right? If you can't withstand fire, you do what? That's why we go into water, because we can't go through fire and come out the other side. So we go to water. But God, God goes through fire. And you know what? The heretic says, all right, good, I'm happy. And I'm going to say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? God's a person who needs to go to mikvah. God's a Kohen, a priest. Not God, God's a priest who can become pure through touching and bearing Moses physically and needs to go to a mikvah immerse, but can't, so God goes into fire. And the rabbi is entertaining this question. Are you kidding? And that's the rabbi's answer? Are you with me on my question? I don't think I articulated it um, as well as I should have. But Mike, the question is, we have this Talmudic story. And the question is, based on the Talmudic story, it seems like God is being portrayed in very physical, humanizing terminology. God's a Kohen. The rabbi doesn't say God's not a Kohen. He says, yeah, yeah, you're right. And he has a hand. Yeah, he has a hand, exactly. God is a Kohen who has a hand, who touched Moses, buried Moses, becomes impure. God becomes impure, right? And at no point does the rabbi say, you got this all wrong. The rabbi goes along with it. So what is going on? What is actually happening here? This seems extremely bizarre, right? And here we have an example of a Talmudic tale. In other words, why doesn't the rabbi just say, you're Meshuggah, you're crazy, you're asking a crazy question, I'm not going to answer you, right? No, he says, yeah, you're right. God's a Kohen, God became impure, he needs to, go, he needs to become pure again, he couldn't fit in the mikvah of water because all the water fits in his hand, so he goes into fire. Really? That's, that's what we're doing here? That's what, that's what the Talmud, this is in the Talmud. So this is what the Talmud is teaching. So we, here we have an example of a Talmudic tale that at the end of the story is portraying God in very human terms. And frankly, the entire story doesn't really make much sense. So this gives us a little bit of an insight into understanding some of the controversy uh, surrounding these stories and why Peter Alfonsi could turn around and try to call the sages heretics. He, he could point to the, to the king, right, or to the leaders of the church and say, hey, I'm a Jew, I can, I can read these texts, and here's what the Jews are teaching, right? This is in the Talmud. The Jews are heretics. They're referring to God in very human terms, right? They're, they're, they're fake, they're, they're not legit. It's not Judaism anymore. And this needs to be abolished and done. This seems to be a, a very perplexing story, a very humanizing of God's story, and very troubling to say the least. Not to say Peter Alfonsi, you know, we're team uh, Peter Alfonsi, but it's very troubling. It's very troubling what's going on. So to understand this, to understand all of this, I need to present... A major idea. This is a major idea. The question is not on the... T and maybe you were thinking this. I bet you might have been thinking this. You know what? Let me, let me ask you a question and you let me know. You'll, by your answer, you'll let me know if you're thinking this. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to ask a question. Can you think of other texts in Judaism other than the Talmud? Forget the Talmud. Can you think of other Jewish texts that seem to use 
human terminology referring to God. Can you think of other texts? Jay. The Haggadah. Good. What else? Hey, cousin. How are you? <laughs> we got the crew. Tell, tell me what else. What other text do we have? Bev. Um, the Chumash. Good. Script. It's a pleasing aroma to Hashem. The sacrifices, good. The sacrifices are pleasing aroma to God. What God, you know, God says, I'm not a, I'm not a potpourri guy. I'm not a sandalwood guy. I'm not a, uh, I'm not, you know, I like, I like uh, barbecue. That's what I like. I like oud, I like oud de barbecue. That's what I like. If that's even how you pronounce it, right? That's what I like. I like scent I don't know. My French is, uh, is non-existent here. Ray, what do you have? Hold on. Oh, unmute. Don't forget to unmute. You got it? There you go. Um, anyway, so somewhere it says, like, um, Moses wanted to see him. He said something about he would turn his back. Yes. In the book of Exodus, Moses says, let me see your face. Right. And God says, you can't see my face, but you could see my back. Hello. Right? So here's, the, yeah, mom, go, jump in. Yeah. I wanted to say that in the beginning, when uh, God consulted, there's two things. In the Bracious, in the, in the, first, in the first chapter, God consulted. Excuse oh, me. Right. Yeah. God consulted. I don't think God consulted with anybody. Um, number two is God blew to make Adam alive to 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 actually God right. didn't blow, you know. Right. He didn't inflate, he didn't inflate the <laughs> Right. It's not like a balloon. Right? It said God blew the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. He blew in his nostrils a breath of life. He blew into his nostrils. I mean, Adam has nostrils, but God is blowing into the nostrils. What's going on here? Good, good, good. So we have, so my point is like this. Scripture itself, and this is not commentary on Scripture. This is not the, the, the later books of, of, of the prophets or the writings, uh, you know, the other holy Jewish books. Five books of Moses, OG Torah, original Torah, is using anthropomorphic terminology, i.e. attributing human qualities to God. The Torah talks about the hand of God. The Torah talks about the eyes of God. It says that God's eyes are on the land of Israel from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. The Torah talks about God, um, talks about God's speech. God spoke to Moses. How many times does it say that God spoke to Moses? Countless times, hundreds of times. God spoke with a mouth. What's going on here? It talks about his white garments in scripture. It talks about how God is merciful and just, vengeful and angry. It gives God human emotions. So here is my point, and this is my big idea for right now. My big idea for right now is just look at how much humanizing terminology is throughout Torah itself. So with all due respect to Peter Alfonsi, Moshe Sephardi, Who's, who's thundering and railing against the Talmud, how dare those sages humanize God, I'll turn to, to Peter and say, Peter, have you read the Torah? Peter, have you read the five books? Are you kidding me? Where have you been? 
God is smiting and God is smoting and God is getting angry and God is getting jealous and God is loving and God is kind and God is doing and he's shaking and God took us out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. And are you kidding me? God has arms? God has hands? Is this what's going on here? In other words, big idea number one is, this is not a question on the Talmud. This is a question on the whole shebang. This is a question on all of Judaism. This is not a post-biblical, post-Torah, rabbinic, um, this is like the rabbis took Judaism and distorted it, and that's what we're fighting against. Really? Have you read the five books? Pretty much says the same thing. It's pretty much in there. So you're not, this is not answering the question. This is just, it's broadening the question, but it's pointing out that the question is not on the rabbis. The question is on the Torah itself. The question is on the Bible. How does this happen? How could the Torah refer to God using human language? When we know, and this is, this we know, it's one of the 13 principles of Jewish faith as articulated by Maimonides. Principle number, which one is it? Let me look at my notes. This is principle number three. The third of 13 states, I believe, animamen, I believe with perfect faith that the creator is neither a body nor any bodily attribute, nor is he subject, nor is God subject to bodily phenomena. That is, in English, Principle number three, God doesn't have a goof, doesn't have a body, doesn't have any body features, no traits, no limbs, garnished. God does not have a body, God is not a person, God is not a human. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons why we have to be very careful. People sometimes get offended. Why are we calling God a he? And the answer is, God is definitely not a he, God is not a she, God is beyond gender. So why is he used? It's a good question, why is he used? It's... Probably because it's an old way of doing it or because it's a convenient way of, of picking something, so that's what they picked. God is definitely not gendered, right? God is definitely genderless. God is not of a human form, right? It's not like, God, let's check the anatomy. There's no anatomy with God. That's, uh, hopefully, hopefully that's clear. There's no anatomy. There's no gender. God is not a body. God is not like a larger form of us. This is so, we know this. We know this, that God has no image, God has no form, God has no body, God has no human attributes, and yet the Torah seems to suggest otherwise. The Torah seems to use words like God's hand, God's arm, God's eyes, God's speech, God's mouth, God's face, God's back. Human emotional attributes, what is going on? It's like we know that God doesn't have a form, and yet all of these human terms... What is happening? There's a, a fairly classic answer that Maimonides gives. I'm going to pull this up in text 3a. This is really important. Because otherwise, <laughs> there's a lot of problems. A lot of problems. Text 3a. Okay, here we go. Um, let's ask Jay. Jay, if you don't mind, jump in to 3a um, from Rambam. If so, what is the meaning of expressions employed by the Torah? Below his feet, Exodus 24.10. The tablets were written with God's finger, God's hands, God's eyes, God's ears, and the like. All its expressions were used to relate to human perception, which knows only corporal imagery, 
imagery for the Torah speaks in the language of man, Talmud Barachot. They are only borrowed descriptive terms. This is apparent from the verse. When I sharpen the blade of my sword, does God have a sword? Does he need a sword to kill? Rather, this is metaphoric, metaphoric imagery and all such expressions are similarly metaphoric imagery. Thank you. So Maimonides, this is a classic idea of Maimonides. This is, just so you know where this is from, this is Mishnah Torah, his book of law, and this is the beginning, when he lays down the fundamentals of the Torah. Hilcho Yusodit is the opening of Rambam, the 14 volumes, this is the opening of his halachic works. He says that you should know God does not have a body. Uh, if so, that's how, he start, that's how the text started. If God doesn't have a body, so then how come the Torah says that he does? His feet, his finger, his hand, his eyes, his ears, chapter and verse is all here, if you want to look it up. The answer is, the Talmud explains. The Torah speaks, Dibra Torah Kalashem B'nei Adam. The Torah speaks in human language. Why? We'll get there in a second. The Torah uses human terms to describe a God that is beyond human form. Right? Why? Text 3b explains why. Text 3b explains why this is so. Jay, if you don't mind doing one more text. We are compelled to portray the creator material terms and to use the familiar attributes of created beings in order to approximate an idea that will establish the reality of the creator's being to the human mind. The books of the prophets presented God in the physical terms that are accessible to human intellect and understanding. Were we to speak of him in a manner strictly appropriate, using only spiritual terms and ideas, we would have understood neither the words nor the ideas, and it is impossible to serve what one does not know. Therefore, there was a need for words and concepts that matched the listener's power of comprehension in order that the matter should affect their hearts. This was done through using, at first, physicality, the, me the medium of physical terms. Afterwards, as the students grow in wisdom and can be more precise, they are informed and brought to understand that all this was metaphorical, a use of literary trope. The true nature of the subject is more refined, exalted, and transcendent than we are able to understand. The devoted mind will strive to remove the outer husks of the words and the materiality from the subject and elevate it to from one level to the next, until one arrives at the true nature of the subject being investigated to the extent that the human mind is capable. Thank you. This is not Rambam. This is another Jewish philosopher, also going back a thousand years. This is Rabbi Bachi ibn Pekuda, who wrote Chovet Halavavot, classic Jewish philosophical work, Duties of the Heart. And he explains, similar to Rambam, sim very similar concept, he says that if Torah were to speak, if scripture were to use um, non-human terms, then you might as well keep it closed because it would not make any sense. You would be using language that we don't know, can't understand, and, and terminology, language, terminology, references that we would have no idea what it means or what it's referring to. Therefore, the Torah uses language that at least we're familiar with, human terminology, with the hope that ultimately as we continue to learn We'll extract, we will broaden and deepen our understanding to understand that it's not meant to be taken literally God's hand, but it means God's power. And with a human being, power is expressed in the arm, right? 
right? Bodybuilders, oh, look at my muscles and my arm. With God, God doesn't have an arm, but God has power. Not physical power, but power power. I'll give you an example. How would you describe sugar? What's a word? How would you describe sugar? Fruit. Sweet, beautiful. How would you describe somebody that goes out of their way to um, do someone, do a favor for someone, something kind, something, you know, they didn't have to do? You might also use the word sweet. Correct? Sweet? So I'll ask you a question. That action, that's sweet. Oh, you held the door for me. That's so, that's so sweet of you. Is there sugar here? Can you taste the action? So why do we call it sweet? We're using a term figuratively. Are you with me on this? Right? Literal and figurative? I know today people say when they want to say something figuratively, they say literally. I know. I know that whole thing. It makes things very complicated. But in general, you can use something, you can use language literally or figuratively. Why do we use figurative language? Why do we say that holding the door for, for you know, thank you for holding the door, that was so sweet. Why do we say sweet? Why do we say sweet? Because just likes, because there's a connection, a conceptual, not a literal connection, but a conceptual connection. You go a little bit deeper than, than the surface. Because sugar is sweet, which means it's enjoyable. It means it's pleasurable. It means it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's exhilarating on some level. So too, doing this was also sweet. I don't know if I have the right, I don't know that I'm explaining the connection as well as I could. But nonetheless, conceptually, there could be a connection. Right? There's, a, there's some sort of connection. We, we use idioms, metaphors, similes. We use this in language all the time, right? When a job is easy, you say that was a piece of cake. Really? Where's the frosting? Is there a candle, piece of cake, chocolate or vanilla? Banana or sponge, right? Devil's food or angel? Yeah, right? I mean, a piece of cake doesn't mean literally. So why do we use the expression? It's helpful. It's helpful to have language that we can associate. Associations are helpful because they explain what's going on. When it comes to God, if we didn't use physical language, materialistic language, even human-focused language, we would, just, we would not be talking about anything. There would just be no conversation. Imagine the Torah was written in, uh, in a language you, you, you never knew, that no one, knew, no one ever knew. Right? Here's the language. No one knows how to read it. That's Torah. Now what? Nothing. Can't do anything with it. So there's no point. So the Torah takes God, right, and describes, uses words that sound human-like, human-esque, with the hopes that one day, as we continue learning, We'll understand it's not literally God's hand, it's not literally God's eyes, it's not literally God's mouth, right? It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. So that we can understand it and then go higher and deeper in the concept, extrapolate, go out of the, of the, of the, of the literal and go to the figurative when it comes to God's descriptions. Let me check in. Let me check in and make sure this makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm hearing what you're saying, but what about the expression of the... Of it's stated, we're created in God's image. Yes. Good. So that could lead one to think that God looks like us. 
with a body, with hair, eyebrows, eyelashes, yeah, two nostrils, feet, toenails, fingernails. Do you believe that God looks like that? Neither do I. I think I saw you shaking your head this way. I hope you, I hope you were doing this. Oh, good. Oh, I'm just checking. I'm just checking. I hope you would do this, right? Um, so, so, no, that's not what it means. Um, you're asking what it means. I'm telling you what it do- definitely what it doesn't mean is that God has a physical form. What it does mean is spiritually, we have ten, 10 energies and 10 soul powers. God has, God manifests these 10, so 10 powers in the universe, 10 expressions of self. Um, some say that just like God has no image, to be created in God's image means that we're, we also ultimately have no image, i.e. we can redefine ourselves. We're not stuck in previous behaviors. There are multiple ways of, of answering the question, but no one, no authentic Jewish source says being created in God's image means that God has, an, has a physical image. On the contrary, what we're learning today is that we use such terminology, even the one like God's image, to express a concept, but not to be taken literally. You with me on this? I've said this many times, and please understand the context, and don't quote me out of context here, don't understand me out of context. The worst thing is that we study Torah as kids. It's the worst. It's the best, it's also the worst. Why? Because it creates an image in our minds, such a Baba Misa, creates such a a reductionist, juvenile image. we have a picture of Adam and Eve and a snake and Noah's Ark. And, and, and unfortunately, what happens so often is kids learn the, this stuff. And then they say, really? And at some point, they're like, you know what? Forget it. I'm out. This is ridiculous. And they stop learning. And that's the, tra- the great tragedy of Jewish scholarship is that people check out before it gets really good, before it gets really deep. The whole Torah is meant to be understood on deeper and deeper levels. Yes, there's a way to understand them when we're kids, but it's definitely not meant to remain there. And if, if, if we as adults are still stuck on that level, not only is it not where, we're, where we need to be, it could be dangerous because it could be um, giving us a misconception of what's really going on. And ultimately, as we're talking about today, a heretical conception. If we think of God as having arms and legs and feet and you know, mouth and from, from the verses in Scripture, it's a problem. It's a problem because that's not the truth and that's, that's, that goes against the very fundamentals of Judaism. So we have to keep on learning. We have to. That's why I tell people, whoever's teaching kids, like, please just tell them, like every day, there's much more that we're not learning yet. Keep on learning. Never stop learning. There's so much more here. Like, don't check out. Please, don't check out until you get to the really deep part. Um, okay. But getting back to our story. This is the first big idea of today's class. Right? The, people have posed this question on the Talmud. How dare you, rabbis? How dare you speak of God in human terms? I noted before that it's not the Talmud that does this. Only it's the Torah that does this. The Bible itself does this. In other words, Judaism itself, forget rabbis, forget interpretation, scripture, the verses themselves do this. They anthropomorphize, they humanize God. So how could they? How could, sorry, how could it? How could Torah do this? Take it easy. Take a deep breath. Count to three. And read Rambam. Read Chovat Read the books. It says... 
because Scripture is speaking in a relatable way, in a, in a, comp- in a, in a way that can be comprehended. Otherwise, it's, it'll be gibberish. You want to study gibberish? Won't make any sense. So Torah starts off using metaphoric language, using language that we can relate to, and then we go deeper and deeper to understand. Anyway, I, I don't want to belabor the point. I just want to check and make sure that this makes sense. Yes? The point is coming across? Okay. So the, the rule of thumb is, when you encounter a verse or whatever it is that speaks of God in human terms, don't take it literally. God's arm means God's strength, which is not physical. It's not how, how much can God bench press? God's not in the gym. I mean, I don't know where God is. You know, not, I can't exclude God from the gym either. But God is not pumping iron in the conventional sense in a gym. God's strength is the ability, the power to do whatever, etc. Okay, God is um, omniscient, omnipotent, and uh, right all, all of these things that, that, that are related to, to human concepts, but of course, beyond. Okay, so I hope that's clear. So based on this, we can go back to our story and theoretically answer everything and wrap it with a nice little bow and, uh, and we're done. You, you, you could probably guess that we're not done, but I'm saying we could be done. We had a story. We had a question, a, m- a number of questions. We can answer it now. Uh, let, me, let me explain how, how we can tie this up. Trust me, we're going so much deeper tonight. But let me just tell you how Right now, we could theoretically tie this up. So, um, remember the story with the the heretic guy, the min, the heretic who comes to Rabbi Avo and he says, Rabbi, what's going on with with God, who's a Kohen, who becomes impure, and where's the mikvah, where's the water, he's too big. The rabbi says, fire. Okay. So he said, are you kidding me? Why doesn't the rabbi shut it down? We can answer the question. We can answer it nicely. We can say that the heretic was a heretic. The heretic didn't study Rambam. The heretic didn't study Chavot HaLavavot. The heretic was a fool. The heretic took it literally. The heretic saw the word truma, which means in this context donation. He said, truma, God's a Kohen. Wrong number one. Mistake number one. Right, God's a Kohen. Nope. Um, God became impure by bearing Moses. Nope. God needs to immerse in a ritual bath. Nope. But the rabbi doesn't have time, right? The rabbi is not going to start undoing all this guy's mistakes because, after all, he's a heretic. So, okay, I'm not saying the rabbi shouldn't spend a little bit more time, but this rabbi wasn't interested. So what did he do? Instead of saying, let me explain to you how to learn these things, or what, he said, you're right, sure, God's a Kohen, God's a priest, God became impure, God needs to purify. I, what about the water? He says, uh, fire, good fire. You happy now? You can go away, done. We would call this in English, he dismissed him, right? He, he got rid of him. The guy's asking a ludicrous question based on a faulty premise. What's the, why is it ludicrous? Why is it faulty? I'll explain. Because he was, he was reading the verses, literally, which we just said you cannot. He was reading, God, reading the verses saying, God is a Kohen, a physical priest. God can physically become impure. God physically needs purification and water. Right? So how are you going to undo that? It'll take time, and it'll probably be annoying for the rabbi. So the rabbi says, sure, absolutely. Um, fire. Done. You happy? 
Good. Zai gesund. Be well. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. That's the way we can understand it. We can understand that God is dismissing it. And the truth is, not God, that the rabbi was dismissing him and his faulty conception about God. And the truth is, Freudian, the truth is that there are commentaries that say exactly this. First and foremost, the great Marsha, the great Talmudic commentary of the Marsha. I'm going to share my screen with you. Take a look at this commentary right over here. Text number four. Okay, let's ask Ray. Ray, if you don't mind to read. You got it? No? You want to pass? Okay, all right, no problem. Let's ask Steve. Steve Horowitz, please jump in for text number four. The question of the heretic indicated that he believed God to be a corporeal ent entity, for a spiritual entity is not susceptible to ritual impurity. Rav Afahu's uh, response was tailored to the heretic's crude understanding of God and was only intended to dismiss his question. Thank you. So that's it. That's Rabbi Shmuel Eliezer Alevi Edel's. Edel was his mother. He's uh, Shmuel Eliezer. Edel's Shmuel Eliezer. Okay? It's the Marsha. So what was he doing? So he said, look, the heretic, clearly the heretic is believing God to be a corporeal entity. Clearly, the heretic is thinking God's a person, <laughs> right? Subject to impurity, he's a Kohen. That's what this guy's thinking. Meshuggah, the guy's off his right. The guy's like out of his mind. Like the, the, this heretic, how you, where are you going to start with this guy? Yeah? So he says, I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to bother. So what did he do? He answered him to get rid of him. It was only intended to dismiss his question. And it was tailored to the heretic's crude understanding. What's the real answer? What's the real answer? The real answer is a spiritual entity is not susceptible to ritual impurity. The real answer is God does not become impure. That's the real answer. But, are you going to go explain this guy? Forget it. Who has time? I'm not bothering this guy. Let me get rid of him. He says fire and not water. And that's it. Zaygazunt. Have a good day. See you next time. Okay, I want to check in with you. I just want to make sure that everything has made sense thus far. Any questions on what we've said thus far? Yes, Mom. I, I have a quick question. Isn't this whole thing an Agada? Yes. It's a story, so yeah. Maybe there was no heretic. Yeah, but, but Rambam only said that last week to, to, to read the stories as allegories only when the stories don't make sense. But when you have a dialogue, when you have a story that, that, that we could understand as a story, a question, a challenge, and an answer from a rabbi, we don't have to go to... You're right. Theoretically, you could say all the stories are metaphors, but Rambam didn't go that far. Last week, he said, when you encounter a story about a wave and a this and a that, something like, you know, out, out of the, something bizarre, that's when you realize that it's, uh, that it's this. By the way, we have to be very careful with that. Which your question, I mean, it's a good question, but the question it reminds me, we have to be careful with jumping too quickly to allegory and metaphor. Um, in this case, we understand there was a heretic, there was a rabbi, he asked the question, and the marshal says he was getting rid of him. That's it, he was just getting rid of him. So yes, the answer is no. God is not a person, God is not a Kohen, God does not become impure, God does not need a mikvah, God is not a fire, not a water, nothing. God's doing just fine. But this guy has a question, so he's giving him an answer, get rid, getting rid of him. I want to say this, answer works, 
perspective works, we are going to go so much deeper. And the reason why we're going to go deeper is because, in truth, there's a lot that's still unresolved. We still have a lot of unresolved issues with this entire topic. And let me explain. Thus far, we've explained that when the Torah or the Talmud speak of God in human physical terms, it's not meant to be understood. Literally, it's only meant to be understood metaphorically. Okay? But it's not so simple. The reason why I say that is because there are certain Talmudic tales. There are stories, statements, teachings of the Talmud that remain totally confounding, totally puzzling, even, even with the perspective that we've explained thus far. The perspective that we've shared explains Scripture and some of the Talmudic stories. The ones that speak about God's hands and God's eyes and God's back and God's face. Absolutely. It's metaphorical. It's speak, speak using human terminology so that we can go deeper and figure out all is true. A hundred percent it works. But there are some stories in the Talmud that it doesn't work with. And we get stuck again. I want to share two such stories. I told you I have three stories today. We did one. We even answered it. We're going to come back to it, though. Um, but let's present two more stories. And I want to show you how the previous idea that we had doesn't exactly work for this. And you'll see why. Let's jump back inside. Um, <laughs> you're going to love these stories. Okay, this is text number five. Text number five. Man, is this a trip. This is such a trip. Um, Marjan, are you up to reading? Text number five. Here we go. From whence do we know God prays? For it says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and gladden them in the house of my prayer. The verse does not say the house of their prayer, but rather the house of my prayer. From here we drive that God prays. What is his prayer? Rav Zut Zutra, yeah. Bartovit said in the name of Rav, this is God's prayer. May it be my will that my mercy should override my anger, that my mercy should prevail over my harsher attributes that I should behave with mercy towards my children and that my kindness should extend beyond the strict letter of the law. It was taught, Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha, the high priest said, I once entered the holy of the holies chamber on Yom Kippur to offer incense. There I beheld God seated upon a high and exalted throne. God said to me, Ishmael, my son, Bless me. I replied, may it be your will that your mercy should override your anger, that your mercy should prevail over your harsher attributes, that you should behave with mercy towards your children, and that your kindness should extend beyond this stricter letter of the law. And God nodded to me with his head. Thank you. Now this story comes from the, this teaching comes from the Talmud Tractate Brachot 7a. 
Brachot is the very first Masechta, the very first section of Talmud and the Mishnah, page 7a, it's kind of in the beginning. And you run into this, and you're wondering, what is going... You know, we said before that there's metaphor in the stories, that there's metaphor in descriptions of God, but how do we make sense of this one? It says, we're talking about God praying. What does it mean that God prays? What's the metaphor? What's the analog? What, What does that mean that God prayed? What does prayer typically mean? I'm just keeping this up for a second so we can keep on looking at it. What is, pray- what is prayer? What, what, what is the content? It's an open question. What does prayer mean? Typically. Who's he praying to? Who's he, but what does prayer mean? It means you pray to God. But what does prayer mean? What are you, what are you, what are you doing? You're asking for something. You're asking for something. Appeal for something. Yeah, so what does God, what does God, doesn't, what does God not have? <laughs> right? Who has something that God doesn't have? And if that thing has what God doesn't have, then that's God. And what do we do? Then why are we calling this thing God? Right? If, if God has a CEO on top of him, then let's call that one God. And let's, let's uh, forget about this one. What's going on here? What does it mean that God prays? That's question number one. Who's God praying to? What's the nature of prayer? What does it even mean? Second of all, I know I just closed it. But like the prayer is, if you recall, the prayer is, I'm going to put it back up. Sorry. Let's put it back up so you can see it as I, as I go through it. He says, um, uh, may it be my will, that's an interesting way of phrasing the prayer, may it be my will, that my mercy should override my anger. So who is he praying to? If you want, God, if you want your mercy to override your anger, I'm pretty sure there's an app for that. Just do it, right? Just, just make it happen. God says, I'm praying that my mercy override my anger. Why are you praying? Just make it happen. Just do it. You want, you want to be merciful and not angry? Sure. Just do it. Why, who, who, who and what are you praying? What's, what, what does that even mean? And then the third piece is also confounding. So Rabbi Ishmael says, he was with the high priest. He entered the Holy of Holies. He sees God. Okay. Again, using terminology, seated upon a high throne. Okay. You're, that, that we know to, that we know to, you know, to disregard. But he says, my son, bless me. What God, God needs a blessing from a human being. And then he says the same thing. May it be your will that your mercy should override your anger. And the same, same deal. And God nodded to me with his head. What is going on here? I, the fact that God has a head, it doesn't have a head, we already explained before about the, the, the physical stuff. But how do you explain this? You want to tell me that a head means this, or a foot means that, or an arm means the other, that's one thing. But go figure prayer. How do you, how do you, it almost sounds like it's a, a way of explaining the 13 attributes that he explains to uh, Moshe on the mountain. Kind of, sort of, right? Right, that, that God is saying, I want to be merciful. I want, yes, good. I want to be kind and merciful and patient and all these things. Good. But who's he praying to? He's God. Who, who, who are you speaking to? Right? Who are you praying? And, and he's looking for a prayer, for a blessing from, from a human being. What's the human? What can you shmal the Kohen Gadol? Give to, give to God. Like how does, what, what type of relationship are we even talking about? It seems very confounding because prayer implies that, that one lacks something and one is trying to fulfill what one is missing. It, it almost sounds like he's appealing to the public that they should be praying. And he's setting an example. He's explaining to them, this is what you should be doing. I hear that. I hear that. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. And, and then the request. Good, I like, I like what you're saying. But at first glance, it's very confounding, right? Prayer implies lack. Is God lacking anything? To whom is God praying? Is he praying to himself, 
right? What's stopping him from being more merciful if he wants to be? Why is he asking Rabbi Shmuel for a blessing? What does it mean that God nodded his head? What does any of this mean? In other words, even using some of the techniques, some of the tools that we described earlier, we're still a little bit stuck. But I want to share one more story. And this story is going to really take it over the edge and really present, it with some, present us with some very difficult questions. All right, let me jump back in. Let's jump back into the text and let's see this. All right, I'm going to read this. We have a verse and the Talmudic explanation. The verse in Genesis chapter 1, 6, uh, verse 16 says, God made the two great luminaries, the great luminary to rule the day and the small luminary to rule the night. So immediately there's a contradiction. In the beginning of the verse, it calls the luminaries great. It says there were two great luminaries, implying that both luminaries, this is the sun and the moon, this both sun and the moon were great. And then a second later, it pivots and it talks about the great luminary by day, the sun, and the small luminary at night, which is the moon. So hold on, is one great and one small, or are there two great luminaries? What's going on? The Talmud answers and says, originally there were two great luminaries, and then one became great and one became small. How did it happen? Text 6b, you may be familiar with the story, I've, told this, I've taught this story before, but I'm telling you this, this is gonna pack a serious punch conceptually. This will knock your socks off. Let's see what the Talmud said, the explanation of the Talmud. But let's see the Talmud first. The moon said to God, okay? So, one second. In the beginning, there were two great luminaries. The sun and the moon were equally bright, equally shining. So the moon said to God, he complained. He said, sovereign of the universe, is it possible for two kings to wear one crown? You're giving both of us, essentially, rulership, sovereignty, dominion, it's not good for two kings to wear, to wear one crown. God answers, you have a valid point. Go and make yourself smaller. He says to the moon, the moon says, what, we're both going to be big luminaries. And God says, you're right, make yourself smaller. Sovereign of the universe, cried the moon, because I raised a valid concern, must I now make myself smaller? I had a good question and you're punishing me. This is a reprisal for a good question. That's not fair. Upon seeing that the moon would not be mollified, right, the moon was still upset after various, we, we, skip, we, dot, dot, dot. we skipped some dialogue just for the sake of clarity. So the moon was not happy about any of the offers that God made. So God said to the Jews, ultimately God says to the Jewish people, bring an atonement on my behalf for making the moon smaller. In other words, my bad, but you... Bring an atonement, bring a carbon, bring an offering on my behalf for making the moon smaller. This is the meaning of what Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish said. Why is the goat offered on Rosh Chodesh, uh, the new moon, different from all other periodic goat offerings? Why is this goat considered a sin offering for God? And the answer is, Rish Lakish answers, because God said, This goat shall be an atonement for my having made the moon smaller, this goat of Rosh Chodesh which is when the moon is at the smallest, right? That's the new moon. Well, it's when the moon first appears after disappearing um, from sight. So that's when there's a sin offering brought and it's a sin offering for God, which means that God says, this goat shall be an atonement for my having made the moon smaller. This will atone for me. Okay, we need to talk about the story seriously because we've got serious problems with the story. 
Number one, God creates two great luminaries. And then the moon lodges a complaint. The moon sends an email, you know, help at God.com and says, one second, right, or creation.org, whatever it is. And he says, we got a problem here. We got a problem. Um, you got two big luminaries. It's like you show up on set and you find out that there's two uh, main, you know, characters playing the same role. It's like you got, you hire two people for the same job. What's going on? You got two great luminaries. What, what's, what's the plan? What's, how do you want us to, what's, what's the plan? So God says, you're right. It doesn't make sense. So you know what? Let's keep the sun in, in, the, in the big role, in the, in, the, in the bright role, and you are going to play supporting cast. You're going to be the moon. You're going to be the small luminary. The moon says, I brought the issue up. You're punishing me. Right? How's that? How's that fair? And God ultimately says, you're right. It's not fair. My bad. I'm sorry. So you know what? Jewish people, you bring an atonement offering for me, for my mistake or my sin or my whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, for making the moon smaller. Atone for me for having made the moon smaller. How do you explain this one? Number one, God didn't know what he was doing originally. The moon was smarter than God. God punishes the moon. God made a mistake for punishing the moon. God needs to be atoned for for, 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 for making the moon smaller. We're bring, we, are, we are atoning for God? None of this makes sense. Zero percent of the story makes sense. Honestly, as a Baba Misa, sure, we can run with it. But as a story to study, zero sense. God doesn't know what he's doing. The moon is smarter. You're punishing the moon, right? The moon's a whistleblower. There are laws about this, right? Come on. You're going to get HR involved here. You're going to punish. You're going to slam the moon because the moon speaks up. That's not cool. Certainly not, uh, not, not, you know, not, the, not the, 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 the positive way that we see the world, right? So what's going on here? And then God needs to be forgiven for. God needs atonement. And we're doing the atoning for God. How do we? It's nothing. And Rosh Chodesh offering. What is going on here? This whole story doesn't make sense. And well, so. Why should God get punished? All right. I mean, it's not punished. It's being elevated. No, as a, Yeah. So, yeah, so the question. So the question is. Right. What is happening with this story? What we're going to do is present. We're going to go straight to the core, straight to the soul, and explain this story in its spiritual, mystical, Kabbalistic, and Hasidic meaning. This will change everything, not only about the story, but about life itself, about our relationship with God, about God's relationship with us and the world, and hopefully also in our own lives, in our own relationships. This is going to be, in my opinion, one of the most transformative things that you and I could possibly learn ever. And it's encoded, like we said last week, in a story about the moon and the sun and the moon shrinking after speaking up. So let me explain. We're going to have to understand this story on a spiritual level. In the beginning, sorry, before there was a beginning, before creation, what was there? Just God. Just God. 
spirit, not physical light, but spiritual light. In other words, God's reality, infinite, unmitigated, unshielded, untempered reality, just pure God, all God, all the time. That's all there was. There was no other. Creation didn't exist. There wasn't any other. It was just God taking up all the space that, that of, of possibility. That's all there was. And then what happens next is interesting. God decides, for reasons only known to God, God decides to create an other. God decides to create the universe. The first iteration of creation was a perfectly smooth and seamless perfectly transparent version of creation. At the beginning of creation, God created every being and every entity as a perfect reflection of its source. If you can imagine like a mirror that perfectly reflects the person or thing, the object standing in front of it or placed in front of it, the world in its original state, the universe in its original state, was a perfect mirror of God. Or if you want to use another term, another way, another metaphor, it was transparent to God. So instead of looking at a thing and seeing it, you, you looked at a thing and you saw behind it, you saw its source. Everything bespoke, everything spoke its creator. It's like you look at a Picasso and you say, that's a Picasso. There's no doubt as to who painted it, right? There's no question as to, you know, oh, who is that? It's Picasso's a Picasso, right? You saw, the universe was a God. I, well, it was God's universe. It was clear. It was a perfect reflection. Everything in existence was completely transparent, didn't get in the way, transparent to its source. And not only did all of creation perfectly reflect God, it didn't have its own self-consciousness either. It wasn't aware or obsessed with self. It was purely one with God. As an example, think of the spiritual heavenly realms. Think of the angels who perfectly reflect God. No ego, no self, no agenda, no ich, as we say in Yiddish, no I, no I, only God. That's what our universe looked like in the beginning. And this is symbolized in a metaphor by speaking of the two great luminaries of the sun and the moon. You see, the sun refers to the source, right, which is God, right? And the moon would be not the source, the us. And originally, they were both great luminaries, which means that God was shining, God's light was shining, and the moon, which is us, creation, was perfectly reflecting God's light in the same intensity with the same brightness. There was no loss of light between source and creation. It was perfectly transparent or perfectly reflecting the source. No loss, no, no diminishment of the light. This is what it means spiritually that there were two great luminaries. It was natural and organic that creation announce its creator. But then the moon spoke up. The universe spoke up. And the moon pointed out 
the lack of significance, the lack of meaning of this model. And so what follows is the dialogue between the moon and God as described by the mystics. I'm going to pull it up on our screen. Take a look at the first piece of dialogue. The moon says, Dear God, I just read the first chapter of your Torah, The Blueprint of Creation, and I noticed something interesting. You speak there of two great luminaries. That would be me and you, correct? God nods his head. Again, not literally. Um, the moon says, With all due respect, I don't get it. If all I do is reflect you, then I am you. There's only one crown, only one light, and why would two kings want to share one crown? What's really bothering me, I guess, is that if I am you, what am I even doing here? Why don't you just shine your light directly? I bring nothing to the table. God says, good point. You are brilliant. Sorry for the pun. I'm shepping nachas. Okay, then, let's revise the original plan. Diminish your light. Stop reflecting me. Let me explain. The moon, or in this case, creation, looks to the source and says, I don't get it. If I'm all about you, if I naturally reflect your light, if I'm so transparent, I'm so dissolved in you, and I'm about you that I don't see myself, nothing sees me, it's only God, so then what kind of other is this? Why do I even exist? What's, my, what, what's the point? You were shining before, and now you're shining now, but you're using me as a mirror for shining, so what's, what, what, what role do I play? So God essentially says, good point. Good point. And you know what God does next? God says, okay. So stop automatically reflecting. God presses a button, again, not literally, and the moon goes dark. Creation goes dark. The universe goes dark. Instead of seeing only God, the moon, now the moon, right? Now sees self. It now sees its own light, so to speak, its own and its own existence. It's now self-aware, self-conscious, self-absorbed, self-centered, even selfish. And the next thing you know, cut to the next scene, Adam and Eve are tasting of the forbidden fruit, exerting their own ego, their own selfish desires, rather than obeying God's will. So you go from a state of reality where perfection is the only possibility because literally creation is just a reflection of God. So there's no possibility for sin, no possibility for ego, no possibility for any user error because there is no user in this case. You go from that and then the user says, God, so why am I here? What's the point? And God says, good point, good point. So stop automatically shining. Now be aware of yourself. And now it's aware of self. And now what does that lead to? It could lead to ego and sin. Wonderful. Wonderful. That would never have happened. Adam and Eve's sin would have never happened had the moon, had creation still be organically, naturally, intuitively, instinctively reflecting its source. If creation is reflecting its source, there's no possibility for sin. But the moment God diminishes the moon, which again is metaphoric for this notion that God causes the world, the universe itself, to become self-aware and not God-aware. The moment that happens, that the default setting of reality is ego and self and not source. The moment that happens, 
and anything and everything is possible. Sin, evil, more darkness, you, you name it, it happens. Which prompts our sages to say the following, which is mind-blowing. Text 7, here's what the mystics say. The sin of the tree of knowledge was caused by the diminishment of the moon. Yeah, you saw that right. The tree of knowledge sin, that's because the moon was diminished. That is the lack of godly light. It is this lack that allows for the possibility of sin in this world. For if God's light were revealed, sin would be an impossibility. When creation, when you and I, let's just speak real. If you and I, not we were fighting for God to figure out God, to see God in a dark No. If you and I naturally and instinctively only felt God and not self, would we sin? Of course not. It wouldn't be possible to sin. So what happens? The moon turns to God and says, if I'm just a mirror, so why am I here? And God says, good point. So no longer are you a mirror. No, you're a piece of copper now. That's it. You're your own mensch, your own thing. The light's diminished. That's it. You got your own, you got your own thing. But now that leads to sin. The possibility leads to ego and the possibility of sin and darkness and, 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 and terrible things. So now the moon comes back to God. And the moon says, um, I'm having second thoughts about this whole, I want to be my own thing thing. Because honestly, I didn't realize that this can get very ugly very fast. Right? Maybe it's better to not have a job and just be a passive, automatic, auto-reflector than have my own autonomy but go sideways, go, go, go in a tailspin. Right? This whole freedom of choice, this whole self-awareness, this whole ego and self and, 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 and battling with that, that's actually maybe not a good idea. So the moon comes back to God. And this is dialogue number two. Please, God, help me understand what's going on, says the moon. I respectfully approach you with a grievance that was, in your own words, a good point. The solution that you suggested, however, is no solution at all. Beforehand, perhaps, I wasn't serving any useful purpose, but I wasn't counterproductive either. I hate this darkness. What's the point in this diminished state of mind? In other words, it's not just the moon we're talking about. It's us. It's us. It's any decent moral human being that's ever wondered, why is the world so dark? Why is evil happening? How come, you know, how does a Holocaust happen? Any decent, how does any genocide happen? Any decent human being has wondered these questions. And at the core, you're wondering, you're complaining like the moon did. What you're saying essentially is, God, why aren't you intervening? Why are you shining and taking care of this mess? Why are you letting us mess it up? Why did you give us the autonomy and the free choice and the self-awareness and the ego and all the complications? Why not just shine? And why not just make us passive reflectors and expanders of your glory, of your light, without getting in the way? Why did you give us so much responsibility and so much possibility for error? We messed it up. Are you with me on the, on the moon's complaint? So the moon wanted a job, and when it got a job, it said... This is dangerous, and this is backfiring. Jay, jump in. Begs the question, why are we here? We're here to serve Hashem. That's it. One second, one second. So here's what, here's what God says. Here's what God says. God says to the moon, you're right. I said before you're right, I'm going to say again you're right. You're right. 
it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult position that you're in. You're in a you're in a world and you're aware of self and you're not aware of me and everything and now things can go sideways. It's a, it it could be very terrible. And it needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed. There needs to be light, divine light into the world, holiness, spirituality, godliness, good things, not evil things. It needs to happen. But God says to the moon, I am not fixing it. I am not going to go back and fix it. You know who's going to fix it? You're going to fix it. You're complaining about the darkness, make it brighter. You're complaining about the evil, make it better. You're complaining about the ego, make it more humble. You're complaining, you go fix it. You wanted a job, I'm giving you a job. You're complaining about the darkness, make it shine. Reflect me. Not automatically, not by default, but through hard work. That's what I want you to do. And so long as you're doing it, you're doing your job. That's what God says to the moon. God says to the moon, I value you enough. Again, moon means us. God says to us, I care enough about you. I love you enough to give you your autonomy, to give you your independence, to give you a role, to give you a job, to give you meaning, to give you purpose. God's response to the moon is tender, loving, powerful, and ultimately very vulnerable. God is putting his light in our hands. I'm going to say that again. God is putting his light in our hands. It's our choice now whether we'll reflect God or not. In the beginning, we had no choice. We had no self. We had no ego. There was no obstruction getting in the way. The moon says, so what's the point? God says, you're right. I'm taking that away. And then the moon says, but we messed it up. And God says, so fix it. I'm not fixing it. You fix it. And so now our role is to be the light, to bring the light into the world, to be the reflectors of divine light and to work hard at taking away the crustiness of the moon surface, so to speak, not literally, but right, polishing those craters and making the moon shine like in the beginning. That's our job. Once, let me, let's hold questions to the end. I want to just run through it and tie up all the loose ends and then we'll get to questions. Give me another... Uh, 90 seconds or so to tie up the questions. What this speaks to is God, God's vulnerability. And this is why God says to us, please bring the atonement offering every Rosh Chodesh at the darkest point of the month, the beginning of the month when the moon is the smallest, when it's the darkest of the month. I want you, human beings, you to Bring the offering. An offering in Hebrew is called the karban. A karban is from the word lekarev, to get close. God says, you want to bring light? Or you want light in the world? I'm giving this job to you. You're going to atone for me. In other words, you're going to bring the light back that I removed. I removed the light. I'm not going to put it back. Because if I put it back, then there's no point. I took the light away. You're going to bring it back. You're going to reflect. You're going to shine my light. You're going to get close or bring the world closer to me back in concert with me. That's what I want you to do. And so God says, please bring this Rosh Chodesh offering and please bring it as an atonement for me. God is, of course, didn't sin. God didn't do anything wrong. But what God did was God was vulnerable, made himself vulnerable by putting that responsibility in our hands. By doing so, he gave us the greatest gift possible, the gift of meaning and purpose. This also explains God's prayer. Remember we said before that God prays? God prays, may my mercy override my anger and all this stuff. 
Why is he praying? And who's he praying to? And why is he asking a, a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, a human being, to, to give him a blessing? Of course, God is all-powerful and God could do whatever he wants, but God made himself, he decided to make himself vulnerable and place his happiness, so to speak, in our hands. And he asks us, please make the right choices for yourself and the world around you. Take a look at this text. Take a look at, at this text, text number nine. Um, to whom does God pray as it were? I say that he prays to us, his nation, the sheep of his flock. He beseeches us to improve our ways and to return to him and thus arouse his will to be merciful toward us. This is God's constant longing. Our wrongdoings, however, impede his ability to be merciful. Do not be surprised that I say that God prays to us and makes requests of us. After all, the verse says so clearly. And now, O Israel, what does your God ask of you to fear him, etc.? God requests this of us because this is entirely in our hands, for he has granted us free choice in the matter. That's the key. That's the point right here. God has given us free choice. And God says, I want to be merciful with you. I want to give you the, I want to shine my light on this world. I want this world to be a peaceful, loving, kind, gentle place. I want it to be filled with my light. I want it to be filled with only blessings. Who can make that happen? We pray to God, God, make this world better. You know what God does? God prays to us, you make this world better. God says to us, you make this world better. Somebody came to the Rebbe after the Holocaust. And said, where was God during the Holocaust? And the Rebbe answered, I don't know where God was or wasn't. But I have another question. Where was mankind during the Holocaust? Where were human beings during the Holocaust? Where was Rachmanus? Where was compassion? Where was love? Where was human decency? Where was morality? Where was ethics? Where was anything humane in that part of the world during the Holocaust? Where were human beings? God dropped the ball. God already said I dropped the ball. God made the moon smaller. That happened, that's so 5,781 years ago. That's not even so last year. That's so 5,781 years ago that God diminished the moon. The question today is, what are we doing about it? God diminished the moon. And then we say, God, make it all better. Fix this world. And God says, you want the world fixed? That's your job. I diminished the moon so that you should shine. You should become the reflector. You should choose to reflect my light. Not automatically, not by default, but by choice. And that becomes significant. And God says, until you do that, I will be in pain. I, God, will, because I want the light and I want good things in this world. But I am not going to intervene. I'm going to become vulnerable. I'm going to make myself vulnerable and put this in your hands. If you choose to do it, thank God. <laughs> Amazing. If you don't, it's going to hurt me. It's like parents and children. You want the best for your kid. But you can't do everything for your kid all the time. At a certain point, they make their own choices. And so you say, internally, you're on your own. Please make the right choice. It's a vulnerability. In a relationship, you say to the other one, I love you. There's no guarantee what they're going to say back to you. If you force them to be a mirror then there's no relationship. When they choose, now you have a relationship. This is what happened in the beginning. God made luminaries. Both of them were great. In other words, the world was perfect. The moon said, so why are we here? What do we do? God says, you're right. Now you're not perfect. Then the moon says, we're not perfect. And God says, okay, so perfect yourself. Not that we're ever going to be perfect, but now start shining, start reflecting. 
You want, it, you want this world to shine, to be a good place. You want your community to be a place where people like each other and get along and help each other. So make it happen. So make it happen. Who are you waiting for? God? That ship has sailed. Not because God can't, but because then there wouldn't be free choice. And then we wouldn't have a role. God made himself vulnerable to put the betterment of our world in our hands. You know, you think of Judaism as a religion where it's all about God. Today, this class, what's Judaism? Judaism is where God says it's all about you. You make it happen. Here are the tools. Here are the good deeds. Here's a list. Get the job done. I'm not going to do it. You get it done. God is empowering us. When you empower someone, you make yourself vulnerable. This explains the first. We're going to end with this. This explains the original story on a much deeper level. Remember the heretic that came to the rabbi, Rabbi Avo? And he said, God, impurity, Kohen, Truma, right? But Moses, bearing Moses, mikvah, water, the rabbi said, fire. And, and the marsha, the great marsha, not dismissing him, marsha said, the rabbi was just, you know, you, you have a misunderstanding of the whole thing. Instead of, I have no time. Yeah, fire, done. See you later. But now we have a completely different and deeper understanding of this story. Here's what's going on. The heretic's question, turns out, was valid. The heretic's question was valid. God can become impure, not in the physical sense. God's not a person, but in the metaphorical sense, in the sense that he makes himself vulnerable to feel as we feel. When our world is broken, he feels that. God makes himself vulnerable. In a real relationship, one party feels what the other party is feeling. And when we're in pain, he's in pain. So when we're in a state of, when the world is broken, when the world is impure, when the world is flawed, when, it's, when there's darkness in the world, he, God feels it also. That's a real relationship. God feels it, not in the physical sense, but God, it, it, it's, it's real for God as, 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 as real as it is for us. So God's impurity is related to our own. He's a committed partner. He's in it for the long haul. And his own purification and redemption comes with ours. And how does that happen? As Rabbi Avo told the heretic, our purification and by consequence, by natural consequence, his purification comes through fire. To bring an end to our own inner impurity, we need fire. We need to develop our own fiery passion for God, for Torah, for mitzvot, for goodness, for kindness, for light, to bring and reflect more light in this world. Water is cold and dispassionate. It's calm. It's settled. It gathers in one place. That's not the ideal approach. You want to light this world on fire in a good way. You want to bring light into the world. You want to be a good moon reflector of the light. We need fire. Hence, Rabbi Evo says, God will immerse in fire. He will immerse in the fiery, loving, passionate relationship that we choose to share with Him. That's what God has been waiting for since the beginning of time, since He first diminished the light of the moon. He's been waiting for us to choose Him over everything else with love and with passion. That's why He diminished the light in the first place. For us to create the fire on our own. Turns out, this silly tale is not so silly after all. God is vulnerable, and it's our fire that becomes His. Every month, we say a prayer called Kiddush Levana, where we thank God for the moon. And every month, we say the same thing. We say this following text. We say the following. 
May it be your will, my God and the God of my fathers, to fill the defect of the moon, so that there be no diminution in it. May the light of the moon be as the light of the sun, as the light of the seven days of creation, as it was before was diminished. As it is said, and God made the two great luminaries, the two great luminaries. We ask God that God help us realize the time, Mashiach, the Messianic era, when indeed the moon will be as bright as the sun once again, i.e., the world will be filled with God's light and we will, naturally, we will shine once again. But this time, it will not be because of God's doing. It will not be because God made the moon shine. It will be because we chose to shine. And the moon will have finally earned her crown. My friends, it's clear, based on Judaism, based on Talmud, based on Torah, based on these stories, what our role is. Our role is to be a partner in creation. Not a passive partner, not an auto partner, but a real partner invested and what we do counts, what we do matters. We don't do the job, it doesn't get done. We do the job, it gets done. No games, there's no tricks. It's real vulnerability. You give someone the job, if they do it, it works. If not, it doesn't work. There's no mopping it up. God is not doing the mopping. God says, you're not shining automatically. You want to shine? Then, then shine. This is our calling. This is what we're here. We're here to bring light into the world. And if, we're, and if we don't like the darkness in the world, then God says, no, no. That's why I hired you. I believe in you. Make it happen. Don't pray to me. Don't pray to me. I mean, yes, pray to me, you know, because we have a relationship, but don't look at me to fix things. You fix things. Don't say, where was God or where is God? Fix it. Fix it. Human beings create messes. Human beings should not create messes or clean them up. Clean them up. This is God's vulnerability. And this teaches us about relationships in general. A real relationship is where you're vulnerable. You put your heart on the line. You put yourself out there. And the other person could, could make your heart up, feel uplifted, can break your heart. We have a real relationship with God. God puts real trust in us. God makes himself really vulnerable. God is not going to fix this world. We're going to fix this world. May we be inspired by tonight's class to take our mission to heart, to put ourselves to, to the task that God has given us, and to be the luminescent moons that we were destined to be. May we shine like we've never shown before. May we indeed bring the light into this world and let us say, Amen. All right, thank you for joining me today for Curious Tales of the Talmud Lesson 2 next week. Next week's class is called An Idolatrous King, The Jewish Perspective on Challenges and Failure. We're going to read about the Talmud's amazing story of an evil monarch who came back from the dead to teach us one of the most important life lessons that you and I will ever hear. That's coming up next week in our third and final session of Curious Tales of the Talmud. All right, I hope you enjoyed today's class where we once again debunked some controversy in the Talmud or anti-Talmudic sentiment. The stories have deep meanings. They're not meant to be understood. Literally, God is not meant to be anthropomorphized. And, uh, and that is the, the messages. Okay, let's jump into questions. Questions, thank you, thank you. Questions or comments? Susan, jump in. I, I get the message. But until we read Kiddush Levana, the sun was not involved in this whole story. Correct. So... No, 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 one second, one second, one second. According to the spiritual uh, interpretation, the sun is God. 
Okay, okay. I, but time out. I'm not saying the sun, physical sun, is God. I'm saying in metaphor, sun is the source of the light, and the moon is the one that reflects the, the light of the sun. Right. In the spiritual analog, God is the source, and we are the recipients of life and the reflectors, hopefully, of God's light. In the beginning of creation, the universe, i.e. the moon, the recipient, was so perfectly in, attuned to God, is so in, the frequency was so attuned perfectly that by nature, it just reflected God. It perfectly mirrored God. God was shining, the moon, the, the world was shining. And then the world said, so what am I, a parrot? What's the point? So God says, you're right. So get your own ideas, get your ego, get your own self-awareness, and try that on for size. I mean, not like a threat, but like, yeah, okay, you're right, good, yeah, I'll give you. And then it got bad. And then the moon said, oh, shoot, what did I do? It was better before. I'd rather not have a job and it be good than have a job and, and things mess up. And God says, not changing it back, not changing it back. This is the way it needs to be. Human beings need to have a role. Human beings need to make it happen. I, wa I want a place where you choose the relationship. I'm not going to choose for you. You choose. What do you want? What do you want? It's, it's very similar. Listen, we've talked about these themes before. We talked about it in the Mashiach class. We talked about it before in um, Secrets of the Bible, where we had our, our fall JLI course last fall. It, it's a theme that runs throughout a lot of what we, what we talk about. It's the idea that God really empowers us and, and our, we, have a real, we have a real role to play. It's a re, the real deal. It's, it's God needs us, right? Could he have chosen another way? Yeah. But, you know, the moon spoke up. God says, I like this. I like this model. Let's roll with it. Not that God really changed his mind, but even that had to come from, you know, the self-awareness almost of the moon, of the of creation. And that creates a new paradigm. But anyway, to answer your question, the sun is not a sun. The moon is not a moon. We have source. And derivative, right? There's source, and then there's secondary, God and us. Originally, us was shining perfectly, and now we're like the dark side of the moon. Until we shine, until we, until we align ourselves with the sun, that's what we're doing, but, but it's on us. And so God says, please bring a carbon, please come closer to me so that you can shine, so that I feel good. I don't like when the world is not shining either, right? God wants it to shine Hopefully, we inside want it to shine. It's just about making it happen. Hence, God says, bring an atonement offering for me. In other words, I made, it, I made it dark. You make it light. I need you to do it. God prays to us. God wants our blessings. God says, I want you to tell me to be merciful and not angry. I could do it, but you, you do it. You create a world in which mercy is the overriding energy. All right. More questions. Yes. Thank you. Sure. Mom. I have one quick question. You keep saying that has God diminished the moon, but the, God said to the moon, diminish yourself. Good, good. You're right. Diminish yourself. Okay, I don't know how to literally um, diminish yourself. Does the moon have the power, does creation have the power to lessen itself? My, I, I, have a, I have a little bit of an answer to my question. Okay. Is that, does that mean that, that we question God? And if we did, then God is really, from the beginning, put the responsibility on us. It said, okay. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the story. The, the way we're understanding the story, the way Kabbalah understands the story is that that creation, whether there was a dialogue or not, it doesn't have, this not an actual dialogue, but the concept of creation being too seamless, too perfect, too naturally perfect to serve any useful point, right? So God essentially shuts that off. So why does God say you diminish yourself? I don't know. I'm not sure how that, uh, but even. My, my thing is because maybe he wanted to show us, give us the responsibility right from the start. Right. But, but the responsibility in, in, in shutting that down in, in, you know, is it speaking up indicates already a certain amount of self-awareness and ego and God says, okay, so you want to. that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Could be, could be that that's another, another nuance over there. The core, the core idea, though, that I want to make sure it doesn't get lost, the core idea here is that there are two models, possibilities of existence. Either a perfect world that's perfect because God makes it perfect, or a perfect world that we make, right? It's not perfect, but we make it perfect. God has heaven, angels, God has all that. God wants, it, wants us to make this world better. This world should shine. So God... Right? The, light, the lights go down, and God says, bring it back up. That's your job. And until then, I turn to you. You turn to me all the time. I'm literally turning to you, human beings. Make it shine. Make it better. Right? God cries with us. And, 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 part, and part of the meaning of that is that God is crying and waiting for us to get it right. It's, like, again, like a parent and a child. If a parent sees a child making choices that are self-destructive, the parent's not going to cry. Of course the parent's going to cry. God forbid, right? God forbid. The parent's going to cry. The parents are going to cry. They can't fix it. They're not going to fix it. It's not their life to fix. Right? But they cry. And they beg. And they plead. Whether, you know, in words or in their own mind. You know, they, they want only the best for their child. God wants the best for us. God made himself vulnerable, and it's up to us now. Marjan. Well, I could be wrong, but when I was listening to the story and the loving side of it that I heard, for me, the moon is such a metaphor of um, second chance, many, many chances and changing. So just like when you love your children, you keep giving them, you're not going to say, oh, you're this wrong, you're not my kid anymore. You're going to keep giving them more and more chances. And just thinking back to stories like, you know, Esther saying, coming back in 30 days and how much of it, the stories are related to the moon, it makes sense because right. there's such space and power for us um, to start over. Yeah, very yeah, powerful. I mean, that's I, ultimate love, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the idea that, you know, the moon is constantly in flux and it's, it's brighter and it's less, that's the story of, of our progress. Right? Some days we're bringing light into the world and some days maybe not so much, like the moon. Right? So physically, some days it's bright because it's reflecting and some days I don't even see it. So some days we're better than others, but the sun never gives up. By the way, I just want to clarify something that you said, that we get second chances. It's not just we get second chances. God knows our flaws better than we know our flaws. Trust me on that. It's not like God says, okay, so, you know, the person, because God, God creates us. So God knows in the inside, you know, what, what, what the challenges are. God created us flawed, right? He created it with, uh, with, 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 uh, with a glitch in the matrix. That's the way it is. So it's not like, it's not like God is trying to get us. I mean, that's, that, that whole perspective 
really we need to we need to work on weeding that out from our person that, that that if we mess up God's going to get us. Even if it seems like that, that's not what's going on. God knows what's going on inside of us. God gets it, and that's not the issue. God's not trying to get us. God wants us to figure it out. And he's patient. Plenty of time. God has all the time in the world. God says, you know, there's no, there's no time that God is subject to. So that's the idea, that God has all the time in the world. God has the patience. And, but he's waiting for us to, to make it happen, to get it right. Yes, God gave us the Torah. He gave, at some point, he gave us the rules. He gave us the secret. He gave us the tools. But we have to do it. We have to build, we have to build this home for him. We have to create this space. To make it nice. It's like, um, it's like a reality show, right? You get all the tools to build a house, you gotta build a house. The producers are not jumping in to build it, right? You gotta, you, you build it. If you build it, you're gonna have a nice house. If you don't build it, it'll be a wreck. It's, it's, it's up to us. So it's, it's not like God is getting us. We, the greatest, if you wanna use the word punishment, the greatest punishment is living in a world that's not, that's not, that's not yet light. I mean, isn't this, Enough <laughs> punishment. The world that we live in, a broken world. That I, I would humbly say that this is this is enough of, uh, of 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 nothing else that needs to happen externally to like you know, so we drop the ball. So now, aha! You drop the ball. Boom! Zap! You don't need a zap. You drop the ball. The ball's dropped. Right. This is the world we live in, where disappointment, evil, challenges, heartbreak, tragedy occur. It's the world we live in. We got we to gotta make it shine. All right, let's maybe one final question if there is, otherwise we'll close out. Um, I just want to add that, that um, I learned a while ago a mimer, a, a, a discourse from the Rebbe, and in, it, in there it says when Mashiach comes, when Messiah comes, the moon will rule, the, will be as bright as the sun, the, moon will, the world will be as run by the moon. In other words, the moon will have the greatness of the sun. Right. That's the perfection, I imagine. Yes. What you just, the lesson we just learned. Exactly. Is that the moon representing us means that we will, we will be back and shine and reflect God. Exactly. Exactly. May it be so speedily in our days as the typical blessing from Mashiach. And, and let's, in our own lives, in our day-to-day lives, let's, let's aim to one more good action to bring a little bit more light into the world, to be reflecting goodness in this moment, moment by moment. All right, thank you all for joining tonight. We'll see you soon. Don't forget, next week, we have the deceased king who comes back to life to teach us a very important life lesson. All right, we'll see you guys soon. Take care. Bye, everybody. Can you imagine this? Oh.